You know, this, uh, this week I had a good example of uh, what it means for forgiveness and repentance that came my way. I'm a school bus driver, as most of you know, and, and the ones that, I, that give me the, the most problems are typically the kindergartners and the first graders. They're the ones that are jumping up and down, running around, hard to control, hard to, to sit in a seat. They're hyper. They're tired. They, they, they just kind of go crazy. And so I have this one little guy that I'm constantly on all the time, and, um, and I, had to, I had to send a note home to his parents because he just wasn't behaving, and it was really for his own safety that we send a note home. So anyway, he, re- he gave me a note back on uh, the next day or the couple days afterwards, and here it is. Maybe you can read it like I can read it, okay? I think it was a first grader. And he says, I am sorry for the way I acted on the bus and not listening to you. And he signed it, his name, Reagan. You know, and I said, uh, I got it on Friday. I'm going to write a letter back to him and to his parents, thanking them for the fact that they wrote me a letter. But, you know, that is, that's an act of forgiveness. Now I'm going to see if the little boy really is repentant. <laughs> Because repentance means he's not going to act badly on the bus anymore. Repentance means he's going to pay attention and he's going to sit still, right? This is going to be a great example of... Yeah, well, that would be a good example, a good good lesson for him. But that was just an example of how we can ask for forgiveness and then the proof is in our repentance. The proof is in how we act after the fact. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I want to speak this morning on what the process of being broken is, and why that's significantly important as we continue in our Christian walk. The old saying, easy come, easy go, really is pretty true. What comes naturally to people is often taken for granted and often unappreciated and usually quickly lost. If it's something comes easy, it typically goes easy. On the other hand, when one has to work hard or sacrifice or take a huge risk to accomplish something, typically that result is much more appreciated and valued. God gives us all natural gifts, and he gives us the ability to accomplish various feats with the talents that he gives us. But we're limited in what we can do with these natural gifts if we don't allow Christ to come in and supernaturalize them. And that's the process of being broken. Spiritually speaking, if we're depending on our natural God-given gifts to be enough to fulfill the destiny that God has for us, we're going to fall far short. That's just the reality. If I'm going to depend upon who I am as a man to accomplish what God wants me to accomplish, I'm not going to hit the goal. I'm going to be far short. God has other plans for us that require on us depending upon him rather than us depending on, on our natural abilities. And we're going we're gonna to see this is true. We're going to talk through this morning, and we're going to find that this is, this is true. Our text for the morning is Psalms chapter 51, verse 17. And it says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. God values brokenness. He values a contrite, humble heart. We're going to talk today at the life of Peter, and we're going to see how God had to dramatically change Peter's thinking and his dependence on his own abilities to a total interdependence on God. 
as we've been speaking about God's chiseling process over the last few weeks, this is a very dramatic case, and it's very relevant to us today. God's requirements have not changed. If God required something of Peter, God requires something of us of the same determination. God is not changing his values over time. So as we look at Peter's life, we're going to see his natural characteristics. We're going to see that he's a very strong man. We're going to see that, that Peter was, he was a fisherman. He was able-bodied. He was strong in character. He was decisive. He was bold. He was willing to take risks. He was basically a natural leader. Peter was a man's man. He was the ultimate of manhood of his day. Peter was born, they think, about 1 B.C., and he died around 67 A.D. His name was Simon originally. When Jesus called him and his brother Andrew, Simon and Andrew, both were fishermen by trade. And we know that fishermen by trade then were pretty tough people. In fact, one commentary says this about fishermen. He says, fishermen at that time were gruff, unkept, vile, shabbily dressed, and often used vulgar language. The fishermen of the first century were a man's man. They were full of vigor and had boisterous tempers. This is, per, this is perhaps why James and his brother John, also fishermen, were called the sons of thunder. Theirs was a rough life since fishing was a very physically demanding job. They must have been somewhat fearless because some of the storms that, that came up quickly on, upon the Sea of Galilee were fierce and, fero and furious. They often caught the fishermen by surprise and could easily capsize the 20 to 30 foot boats that they used. So Simon, Peter, was a man's man, and we see, we'll see these traits emphasized throughout Peter's life as we go through here today. Peter was perhaps the first disciple that Jesus called. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 through 20. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Now there's a lot more to the story here that we're not going to have time to get into on that particular event. But the point I want to make here is how that Peter saw something in Christ that was a significant enough that he would drop everything that he had. He would leave his business and follow Jesus. Peter was married. He had a family. We don't know much about his marriage, but he was married. Yet, when Christ said, follow me, there was something enough there that he was willing to leave his boats, his nets, his accessories, everything that came with his trade and simply left them and followed Christ. Peter was decisive. He could make a choice and he could follow through on it. That's pretty much part of a strong demeanor. Now, how many of us today would do the same thing? Come on, let's be honest here. How many of us would do the same thing? I mean, some of us have a hard time being to church on time on a regular basis, let alone dropping our business to follow Christ, right? I mean, some of us have a hard time following through with many things. So this has got to make you think. That's all I want to do. I just want to make you think here. What would you do? How would we do these things? Simon's name was changed to Peter. Now, names in the Bible are significant as they often describe the characteristics that God sees in that particular person. So it's not uncommon for names to be changed. There's other names that have been changed in the New Testament as well, and even in the Old Testament. Abram, the Abraham, 
Sarai to Sarah, Saul to Paul, Simon to Peter. Jesus was the one that changed his name. John chapter 1, verse 42, and he said, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas from now on, which then is translated Peter. And Peter in the Greek is Petros, which means rock or individual stone. So Christ saw the potential in Simon Peter, and he's changed his name to reflect it. From Simon to Peter, which means little stone or rock. So Peter was the rock that Jesus saw. And we're going to understand a little bit more about what that really meant in a few minutes. Talking more about Peter's character. Peter was the first to have a revelation knowledge who Jesus really was. When Jesus was speaking to his disciples and asking them, what, who do people say that I am? We read this in Matthew chapter 16. Peter comes up with a revelation that is not given by man. Most of the other disciples were talking about what they had heard. Well, some say this, some say that, some say this. But Jesus said, no, now who do you say that I am? Peter was the first one to step up. Matthew 16, verse 17 and 18. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So God in heaven revealed to Peter who Jesus really was. Jesus was the Son of God. And it was on the revelation of this is what Jesus was going to build his church on. He's not building it on Peter's humanity and Peter's natural strengths and Peter's giftings. Peter's strengths and his giftings would never be able to overcome the gates of Hades or hell on his own. So it's only in the revealed knowledge that Peter had that, what, that enabled him to be the rock that, of which Christ would build the church. Peter also, we find, walked on water. Matthew chapter 14, verses 25 through 29, and you all know the story. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come out to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Peter, a man that can take a, take a risk, a man that's not afraid to get out of the boat. All right, that's, that's the man that that's Peter is. P Peter was also the disciple that wanted to build shelters for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus at the Mount of uh, Transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. Then, just then, there appeared before him Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter, of course, Peter. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So again, Peter was right there in the forefront, right there willing to take charge. I'll build these shelters. This is good. Let's, I'll build some places we can all rest. Peter had enough gall and determination later on to tell Jesus that he was wrong about having to die. Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. 
Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> Can you imagine that? But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter was not timid in what he believed. I say all this just to show you the character of Peter in his own strength. He was a natural leader. He was the ringleader. He led people and people followed. He was a type A personality. He was a driver-driver type person. He was a person that would talk and act before he really thought through the consequences of what he was saying. Anybody know any people like this? A person that feels it's better to ask for forgiveness rather than ask for permission. Let's just get it done. Peter was just a get-it-done type of a guy. I have to say that I was raised by one of those kind of guys. These are the kinds of people that can be very successful in life. These are the kinds of people that can lead people, and they are leaders that way. But the question remains, is it enough? Is it enough? Was it enough for Peter to have these natural giftings from God and these abilities for Jesus to trust him with carrying on the gospel message to all that needed to hear it after Jesus was gone? Recognize the significance here. Were they going to trust, was God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, were the, was the Trinity going to trust Peter to be the man that was going to lead the new church while Peter was acting in his own strengths? He certainly had good characteristics. He certainly was a good leader. See, even though Peter had received abundant revelation of who Jesus was, and he had proven himself over and over to be a good leader and, uh, and, and had a great personal character, God saw that there was more work to be done in his life before God was willing to use him. But to see this, we need to set the stage a little bit more on the overall situation and, and see what was happening, how this was going to play out. So let's move forward to the Passover supper, the Last Supper. Remember here, we're talking about the necessity of a broken and a contrite heart that God uses. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, and we're going to stay it here for a little while. Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you that I will not drink it again. I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and he broke it and gave it to them and saying, This is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, This is a cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So you can see the seriousness of the time here. Pretty significant things happening. But then he goes right on to say in verse 21, But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Totally understandable, don't you think? That in the seriousness of the hour, Jesus is saying, hey, one of you guys are going to betray me. So it certainly makes sense that they would start doing some soul searching here. Is it me? 
Am I going to do it? Is it? Is it? What have I done? Am I going to be the guy? So they go into the soul searching time, but but we're going to see real quickly that their motive for their soul searching wasn't pure, and we know this by how the conversation ended. All right, go to verse twenty-four. The next verse. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. <laughs> now, <laughs> Jesus just laid out to these guys, I'm going to die, guys. And you, one of you are going to betray me. So they talk about that for a minute. And then isn't it just like men to get right into the moving into, all right, now, God, which one of us is going to be the greatest? How simple-minded. Jesus said to them, verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you, are not like, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. So this is so much like Jesus. He knows the reality of the situation. He knows that it's just going to be a matter of hours and he's going to be put to the test. We know that he knows that he's going to the cross. He knows exactly what's ahead of him. But yet he takes this as a teaching opportunity to teach his disciples. What a great opportunity for Jesus to be offended at these bunch of losers. And say, come on, you guys. Don't you get it? You guys, I'm going to just throw you guys away and I'm just going to do this on my own because I don't need you guys because look at you. You guys are arguing already about who's going to be greater. But that's not Jesus. Jesus went right into a teaching of servitude and humility over being prideful and being served. He had every right to be really offended at these guys. Now, who do you think led the discussion of who's the greatest of the twelve? First thing that pops to my mind is Peter. I mean, he clearly believed he was the greatest. He, he had proven to him many times over that he was the greatest of them also. I got to think that Peter probably knew that he was the greatest of the 12. But this confidence, though, was not anchored in love. This confidence was anchored in pride. And Jesus knew it as well. And so did the devil. There was some breaking to do in the life of Peter before he was going to be usable by God. We see in verse 31, and then Jesus speaks directly to Simon Peter, the leader of the group, and he says this, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you, has asked to sift all of you as wheat. In other words, he's going to dig into all of your life, Simon, Peter, and Satan wants to sift you. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now, this is a really interesting and important point that we need to realize here. Satan has requested to sift Peter. What does that mean? What does it mean to sift? The word sift is translated from a Greek word, synazio, and it means to sift, shake in a sieve, in a, in a, in a sieve an inward agitation to try one's faith to the verge of overthrow. This was serious stuff. This was not just a little shaking in the life of Peter. Satan was going to destroy Peter here. This was, out, this was meant to destroy Peter. Now, if Jesus had the mentality of many of us in the church today, 
we would expect Jesus to pray differently. We would expect Jesus to pray this way, that he would bind Satan and not allow Peter to have to go through this test. He would say, no, you know, Peter, you're a faithful servant. You've been one of my, one of my best guys for the past three years. Let's, come on, guys, let's rally around and let's bind Satan over Peter right now. Let's, let's just bind the work of the enemy right now that, that Satan will not have the ability to sift him. Isn't that probably what we would do? But how did Jesus pray? Jesus prayed this way. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. See, Jesus prayed that his faith wouldn't fail him while he was undergoing the difficult times. He didn't pray against the difficult times. He didn't say they're not going to come. No, he knew they were coming. He knew they had to come because there had some stuff, there was some stuff in the life of Peter that had to go. Jesus knew that out of this tough trial for Peter that he would emerge as a new character with a new personality, with, with, with a new brokenness, a one that God needed Simon Peter to have to fulfill the destiny that God had, but not in Peter's strength, in the strength that God would give. But what was Peter's response? Verse 33, But Peter replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Still, Peter's life is full of pride. He's saying, I can do this, God. I'm, I'm on your side. And, and, and you and I are going to stand together, and I'm going to go with you to death. <laughs> and Jesus is saying, guys, if you read what Jesus said, he's saying, guys, it's going to take a broken and a humble and a contrite heart to be used of God. And they're still talking about who's the greatest. Who's the greatest? And, G and Peter is confidently declaring that he's ready to go the distance with Jesus, even if it means prison or death. See a problem here anywhere? You see a disconnect here, what Jesus is saying and what these guys are living, what these guys are thinking? Jesus is saying this. These guys are hearing this, and they're living out this. There's a problem here. Makes me want to think about myself. Can you see anything about yourself in this so far? Have you ever declared things about what you're willing to do for Christ? What does Jesus say in response to Peter's overconfident approach to what's going to happen? Luke 22, verse 43, right in that same chapter, just a little further down, Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you even know me. Now, how do you think Peter felt? How do you think that made Peter feel? Now, we don't have any record of what was going through Peter's mind here. But I think with Peter's history of being a self-made, strong, confident person, I think we can only assume that he didn't believe that that was going to happen. I, I think that Peter said, no, Christ, I'm never going to deny you even to this point. I think at this point Peter is still raise, rising up in pride and, and, and self-determination of his own ability and say, nope, not going to happen. Not going to happen. I'm with you. I'm with you to the bitter end. But what happens to Peter? What was the sifting process looking like and going to look like for him? Let's read on. Turn your Bible to John chapter 18. Flip over to John, another gospel. John chapter 18. We find Jesus and a few of his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane later that night. They've gone to pray. Starting at verse 8. They've been praying. 
The temple guard has come. They're looking for Jesus. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these other men go, his disciples. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. <laughs> then Simon Peter, here he comes. Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now, I can only imagine what's going on in Peter's mind here. He's replaying the conversations that he and Jesus had just a few hours earlier. Peter's saying, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death, and I'm proving it to you right now. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to take on the temple guard all by myself. I'm, I'm going to protect you, Jesus. Because I think and also in the back of Peter's mind, he's hearing what Jesus had said. I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you even, that you even know me. So Peter is saying, no, look at me, God. Look at me, Jesus. I'm the man. I'm still here with you. Now, this proves to me that Peter was a brave man. Peter was no coward. He was right in many perspectives. He wasn't wrong about who Jesus was or what he believed about him. He was 100% correct in his thinking. However, there were some things yet that need to be taken out. There were some things yet that, were, that in his heart were just not right. Even though Peter had received abundant revelation of who Jesus was and he had all these right characteristics, he was not yet walking in the character and humility of Christ. His, he was still building his life and his ministry on his past victories and on his pride. Significant that we understand that because I need to know this because this is me too and this is you too. God needed to do some work in the heart of Peter so that he had the heart of God. And, that he, and he didn't have the, the heart of a strong man in his own opinion of himself. God needed to break him. The pride in Peter's life would, would eventually become his downfall. The pride would eventually be the thing that took him down, so God had to break him and remove it from him. Let's fast forward a little bit. Turn, turn back to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26 starting at verse 69. They've arrested Jesus. Now he's in a courtyard. He's ready. They're, they're putting this mock trial on. They're trying to uh, accuse Jesus of doing things he didn't do so they could, they could uh, crucify him. Matthew chapter 26, at, beginning at verse 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Wow. What I find so interesting about this is this. Peter, just a few hours ago, was willing to die. 
He took the sword, cut the, cut the, the temple guard's ear off. He was ready to take on the whole battalion. And now, a little servant girl comes up to him and says, hey, you're one of them. It's not the big things that will get you. It's the little things. It's the little things that will, will be your downfall. There's a whole sermon we could preach on that, and I'm not going to go into that one because that's a great rabbit trail, but we don't have time to go down there. But yet he was willing to die for Christ, and he proved that a few hours ago, now a little servant girl comes up to him, and now that's the thing that brought him down. Remember what Jesus told Peter about what Satan wanted to do? Jesus said, Satan was going to sift you, Peter, and it looked like Satan was going to win. Peter had fallen, and it looked like Satan was winning the battle. While at the same time, and this is so important, at the same time, God was using this to break Peter into something he could use later to build his church. What Satan was using, what meant for evil, God was using for good. Significantly different outcomes from the same experience. Satan comes to kill and destroy. John chapter 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So God uses what Satan intended to kill and destroy to accomplish something in actuality that was going to defeat Satan. Isn't that so cool how God works? To think that, that what Satan was using to defeat Peter was actually going to be the thing that turned around to defeat Satan. Isn't that interesting? And that's the process. That's why the process of being broken is so important, not only in the life of Peter, but also in my life and in your life. That if we're going to be in a place of spiritual authority, if we're going to be positioned to have godly authority, God is going to have to make sure that you and I are trustworthy of it. Think about that. Think about what God is giving you and the fact is he's trusting you with his authority. So he better make sure you're of the right character. You better make sure, he better make sure, Peter, that you are not operating in your pride anymore, Peter. I'm going to break you of your pride and I'm going to humiliate you so that I can trust you as I rebuild you. Wow, that is so powerful. And often we miss it. We miss it. So you may be asking, why is it necessary for, for a man to be broken before God can use him? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Turn with me there or, or read or listen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Remember, God detests pride in a prideful man. There is no room for pride in the kingdom of God. There is no room for pride in the kingdom of God. Could you imagine what heaven would be like if there was pride in heaven, if we got to heaven by our good works, do you know how tired I would get up here and everybody brag about what they did to get to heaven? Do you know how, how, how eternally 
aggravating that would be to listen to each other brag about what we did to get to heaven? God says there is no pride in heaven. You're getting to heaven one way and one way only, and that is through my, the blood of my son, Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with what you've done. There is no pride in heaven. So therefore, God had to remove pride in Peter, and he's got to remove pride in my life and your life if you're going to be usable and if you're even going to get to heaven, let alone usable. But I know that we have the process so much in our minds that God can use me because I'm pretty special and I've got a lot to give God. I've got a great education. I've got a great background. I've got a great name. I've got a great heritage. I've got all this stuff. So therefore, God, you can use me just the way I am. And God's saying, Mike, slow down here, buddy. <laughs> There's not a whole lot I can use of you besides your humility and your brokenness. God's very consistent. If he had to break Peter so that Peter could be used to build the church, then he has to break me and you, you and me, so that we can be used to maintain the church. He's not using prideful people to grow his church. He's not, he's not using people that know who they are in themselves to build his church and to maintain his church. No, he's going to break us. He's going to break us down. If you're going to be used, God breaks us of our pride and our self-reliance, but that's not to leave us without hope. That's not to leave you and I without hope this morning. What happened to Peter? What was the outcome of Peter's life? We've got to fast forward a number of days now. Jesus dies. He rises from the dead. He's once again among them prior to his ascension. He's, been, he's with them 40 days. He's proven the fact that he's alive, but he has some unfinished business to do with Peter. He has some unfinished business, something very important here so that the sifting process of God's work can be completed in Peter's life. Remember, Satan came to destroy Peter. That's not God's intent. You've got to realize that Peter has been going through some pretty hard times by now. He's, de he's denied Christ. Christ came back from the dead. I'm sure Peter has had a lot of soul searching going on in those last 30, 40 days. I'm thinking, man, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know if I can be used anymore. I, I've blown it. I mean, I really blew it. I denied you, Christ. How can I do anything for you anymore? I, I'm, I'm just no one. I, I just got to believe Peter was probably very distraught throughout this whole time, and he probably was putting on a good face in front of the other guys, but inside him, I'm sure he was being chewed up. I'm sure that he was really miserable. But what did Jesus do? Open your John chapter 21. John chapter 21, and let's look at what Jesus did to finish the work of sifting, of brokenness. John chapter 21, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon, Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, I'm sorry. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Now, he said this, but probably still in his heart, he's still probably grieving in his heart to think, man, do I really love him? Do I really love him? I'm saying that, but, but do I really? And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. 
And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Oh, there's so much here. Jesus asked three times for Peter to declare his love and allegiance to him. And each time, the deepening of that level of love grew and that commitment grew to him. And I don't think it's coincidence that it was three times that Jesus asked him, do you love me, to correspond with three times that Peter denied him. Each time the denial got a little more adamant with Peter, and each time the love gets a little more intimate with Christ. Then Jesus made it very clear to Peter, Peter, you're going to end up dying for me. He never made it easy for Peter. He never said, Peter, come follow me now, and life is going to be good. You're going to be the pope. You're going to be the next leader of the church. You're going to be the one everybody looks up to, and people are going to serve you. He didn't say that. He said, Peter, you're going to die for me. Do you know that? You're going to die for me. And then he said, follow me. You know, I heard him say that one other time. Back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, we said it. When he first called him, remember? When he was a fisherman, what did Jesus say? Come follow me. What did Peter do? Followed him. The same call is given to Peter now. Come follow me, Peter. And I'm telling you this time, you're going to go through some hard stuff. He didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't make it grand. He made it reality. And you know what? And the same call is for you and me today. We can't sugarcoat this thing called salvation. It's hard work, guys. It's a battle out there. But God's going to put you through the sifting process too, not to destroy you, but to make you into the character that he can use, the kind of character that will be with him eternally in heaven. And we need to see it that way, and there's truth in that. When, when I see the truth of God's word that way, it, it enables me to sustain myself through the hard times, not through Mike way, but through the grace of God and through the power of Jesus Christ that gives me strength. Jackie, if you'd come this morning, and we're going to prepare for communion. Jesus says, come follow me. Come follow me. That's what he's calling you today right now. Come follow me. Leave all your stuff behind. I don't need anything you have. I don't need your cars. I don't need your house. I don't need your money. I don't need your, I don't need your education. I just need your broken, contrite, humble heart. That's what I want. That's what I need. Our text, 51, Psalm 51, 17, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise that. See, understand that Jesus never calls anyone with the promise of joy, happiness, and peace. He doesn't call you that way. That doesn't mean that you can't have joy, happiness, and peace, but you're going to have that as you're obedient in the process of being sifted. You're going to go through some hard stuff, people. It's okay. He's going to be there with you. He's going to carry you through it so that when you come through it, you can strengthen the brothers like he prayed Peter. When you get through this, Peter, strengthen the brothers because you're going to be strong in character because you're going to have the heart of God now and you're truly going to be the heart of Christ. You're truly going to be humble. You're truly going to be able to lead out of a spirit of brokenness and humility, not pride and arrogance. Total different scenario. That's the only way we can come to the Father. So this morning, I don't know how that makes you feel. 
but I've been struggling with this all week long to think that I have to get up and I have to give this kind of a message talking about humility, talking about being broken and recognize that I have to battle this all the time just like you do. Just like you do. Whether you realize it or not, we're prideful people. We're prideful people. And if we're not seeing that the, necess the necessity of God's breaking us, if you're not seeing that, can I tell you that pride continues to cloud the facts for you this morning? I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't care how new of a Christian you are. It's irrelevant. Pride must be broken. And if you can say to you, if you're, if you're saying in yourself, well, oh, Mike's over the top again. You know, he always preaches this way. He always preaches so doggone hard all the time. I'm sorry, it's not hard. It's the truth of God's word. And if we're not allowing ourselves to be broken before the Lord, when we're not really going to be used of the Lord. And, and even worse yet, we may not even make it to heaven. See, God sees you exactly as you are right now. And he wants you to be totally dependent on him. And he loves you enough to break you. But when he does, understand he will never leave you broken. He will never leave you that way. He will always restore you with a sense of love, a sense of peace, a sense of, I'm with you guys. I'm with you through all of it. And when you emerge on the other side of that sifting process, you've got great reward in heaven. That's what we need to hear this morning. We don't need to hear just the good stuff. We need to hear the whole truth so that I know how now I get through these things. Our lives need to remain in a broken attitude before the God where we totally rely on him, always, always. Even when God answers our prayer and he heals us, we say, that's why Dick was so important for us to say thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for healing me. Thank you for doing the things you're doing because I'm continuing to give the glory to him and I continue to put myself in a, in a position of receiving because of my humility, never rising up in my pride to receive the glory, always giving it to Jesus first. Amen. This morning as we come together for communion, I, I would just like to have us all take the next couple minutes and just reflect on this a little bit. It's important when we come into communion that we don't come pridefully that we come broken before him. So let's just take one minute. So everybody just close your eyes. You may not feel worthy to take communion today, and, if, and you're probably right. But what we do here is we say, Jesus, would you please forgive me? Would you please forgive me? I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the times that I failed you. I'm sorry for the times I thought I could do it on my own. I'm sorry for my pride and my arrogance and I didn't even know it. Break me. Mold me. Fill me. And use me.